Okay, we are in Mark chapter 2 today, starting in verse 1. Mark 2, verse 1. Hope you had a chance to look at your fish. Spend a little time digging around. There's a lot in there, right? (laughs) You need more time to look at your fish. Yes, you got the rest of your life. Um, So... Would someone read for us? Let's, let's um, work our way through this passage. Um, someone read for us, starting at verse 1, and read through the first story. There are five stories here. And so we want to read, starting at verse 1, read through um, the first story, which ends at verse 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lower the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Okay, great. So, uh, they're back in Capernaum, and... uh, Jesus is presumably in a house preaching, uh, maybe the central courtyard of a house, um, and uh, under a roof, and uh, these, these individuals show up. Um, some men came, bringing a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. So four, the famous four friends uh, are carrying this man, and uh, they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd. And uh, so they, they make a hole in the roof. And they lower the man uh, through the roof and before Jesus. Um, so let's, let's think about this for a moment. Uh, pretty radical decision on the part of these folks. Um, yeah, a little property damage going on. Well, yeah, they climbed up on the roof and, and uh, opened it up and, and they dropped the man down through. And so we have uh, Jesus. What's Jesus' response to this, this act? The faith of the people. Okay. He responds to their faith. He sees it as faith. Peter probably saw it as property damage. Um, he's thinking State Farm. Um, you know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> call the call the constable. Um, but but Jesus sees faith uh, and um, sees their act 
this radical act. And I, I love these guys because it's a radical act of faith. Uh, they will not be deterred. Um, it would have been easy for them to say, well, we just can't get there from here, right? You just can't get through the crowd. There's no way we're going to get to Jesus. Maybe we'll wait. Maybe we'll see if we can catch up with him another time. Well, I guess we'll just have to turn and go back. No. They kept looking until they found a way. And it was pretty unconventional, but they found a way. And Jesus marvels at their faith and, and um, responds to that faith. And what does he say to the man? Your sins are forgiven. Yeah. Well, first he addresses him as son, right? Um, which, is, which I think is noteworthy um, because Jesus, uh, he's responding to the faith of these people. He looks at this man who's a crippled mess, right? And I would imagine many of the religious leaders looked at that man and thought, who sinned, right? Who sinned to cause him to be in this situation? Was it him or his parents? We know that that comes later in another miracle, right, that Jesus will perform. But there's probably situations where they look at this and they would think, okay, sin, or uh, they would have understood that, that sickness and sin are related. And they would have thought that this man must have been either some kind of a sinner or his parents must have been some kind of sinners in order to be born like this or to have this kind of um, ailment or crippling. Except they were all sinners. Except they were all sinners, exactly. But yet, it's easy when you're a religious leader to point the fingers, right? And, um, and so Jesus sees the man, responds to the faith, son, your sins are forgiven. Um, and he addresses the sin issue rather than the physical issue, okay? Um, the underlying issue. Um, now, immediately, how do the religious leaders respond? Blasphemy. It's blasphemy. What? Who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is, right? Um, and they ask the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay? Okay, so why is Jesus, why did Jesus forgive the man's sin? Because he wanted to provoke this question. Okay? Jesus is, he's poking the bear, okay? He is instigating these people so that they will ask the question. All right? He doesn't want them to just settle in and think, well, man, that guy's a great healer. Jesus is provoking them to ask the next question. This goes beyond just healing. This goes beyond the work of a prophet. This goes beyond the work, right? Who is this guy? Who is he? He's provoking this question about his identity. Um, what does Jesus do next? Yeah, he reads their minds, which may not have been too difficult to do. It was probably written all over their faces, right? I perceive in you, that you're thinking in your hearts, right? Um, what, does, what does he do? How does, what is his response? He's calling them out on it. Mm -hmm. Because it's obvious anyone can say to someone else, your sins are forgiven, because there's no physical... Um, visible proof of that. Right. But if someone's paralyzed and he 
you heal them, that's going to be pretty darn obvious. <clears throat> Dan, in this day and age, wouldn't you say they'd probably been to a physician? There probably were some quacko faith healers out there. I mean, there's probably been many things that this man has tried. Right. To, wouldn't you... At that time, probably. You know, we're going to find out later in chapter 5 that there's a woman with an issue of blood, and she's going to say she's been to doctors, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was, a, that was apparently possible, depending on the economic status of the person. Yeah. So we don't know, but at this point, um, I mean, this guy is obviously crippled, and uh, there's no question that he's physically um, impaired. So we have, um, let's think about kind of the pattern, what happens here. Jesus acts. He does something, right? In this case, it's a healing. Right? And then what happens? Teachers of law get offended. Okay, people get offended, but they question, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it elicits a response. People question. And then Jesus... What does he do? He questions them. He, he asks another question. <laughs> Usually, he answers their question, but see, always with an eye to reveal. Revealing more about his identity, right? Um, so this is kind of the pattern that we see taking place. Um, and we're going to see this repeated as we move through these five stories. All right? And uh, so I want you to see how they tie together. What is the people's response after Jesus heals the man? They're amazed. They're amazed, everyone. Uh, is amazed and they praise God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Okay? Um, so now let's move on to the next story and take a look at what Jesus does uh, next. Verse 13, someone read 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he had reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, good. So, um, I love this story. This is one of the great stories of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is walking along um, out beside the lake again, and there's a large crowd, and he's teaching them. And as he's walking, he sees Levi, 
the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he says, you're a dirty dog. (laughs) And God's judgment is upon you because you are a traitor to your people, Israel. Right? Isn't that what he says? That's what he should have said. That's what any religious leader thought about the man. Right? Right? Because what what is the problem with tax collectors? They're cheats, number one. And number two... They're traitors, okay? Um, When you are an occupying force, you need somebody who knows the culture and the people of the community in order to do your bidding, right? Because nobody's going to work directly with the Romans. The Romans don't know who owns property, who has money, who has jobs that produce enough money and what the tax should be. And so they employed people from the domestic population to be their tax collectors. And they basically said, here, for example, Rome wants 10% of everything that the people produce. You can charge what you want as your fee. So some could charge uh, a 12%, others could charge a 20%. It didn't matter, Rome only required 10, all right? And so they built in this incentive and you have the, the force of the Roman legion to enforce whatever you should decide you're gonna, you know, you're tough enough to choose, right? And so these tax collectors, this is what they did, okay? It's quite possible that this guy was more of a toll collector, more of a commerce tax collector. We don't really know. Um, But he's sitting there at the tax collector's booth and Jesus walks up and he says, follow me. Now, I wanna pause for a moment and I want you to think about Peter and Andrew and James and John who lived in Simon's in in Levi's community. What did they think about Levi? What did they think about Levi? They hated him, okay? He represented everything that they hated. They were hard-working individuals. They were the businessmen from whom Levi was extorting money. Okay? So he's the guy who's taken their cash. He's taken more than he should. And he's working for the Romans. And the the tax rates were crushing. Okay? They were taking all of their profits. And this is why there was so much unrest in Galilee. Okay? Because you have... You have the Romans taking their share. You have the tax collectors taking their share. And then you have the Herodians, because Herod rules this area. He's taking a a, a cut as well. And so everybody's dipping into these guys' fishing baskets. All right? And so um, now Jesus asks Levi to become a follower of his, to walk alongside Peter and Andrew and James and John. Think about what that created for these guys. You know, we talked before about Jesus stretching them, right? Well, this is a stretch, right? My goodness. Yeah. Absolutely. That's right, because they hated him. All right? And so this is the kind of situation that Jesus creates. He creates this situation because he's teaching his disciples. They will never make it to Rome. 
to love the Romans and the Greeks if they can't deal with Levi. And so Jesus is beginning to break those barriers down. He's training them for mission work. He's training them to expand their understanding of the kingdom. And then he get, it gets worse. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Okay, let's just pause there. Dinner at Levi's house. What's wrong with this picture? Okay, let's, we'll talk about the guests in a minute. Okay, the food. You're, you're eating in the house of a person that does not have a kosher kitchen. Okay? And so you as a rabbi and your disciples are now in the house. First of all, you don't go in this guy's house. You just don't go under his roof. Number two, and you don't eat from his kitchen because you would be defiled. You have no idea what, how food's been prepared, okay, how that kitchen's been maintained according to the laws of Moses. You would be able to go into your brother's house, into a good Jew, a good upstanding Jew's house, because you have confidence in their kitchen. You don't have confidence in this guy's kitchen. All right? You have to understand that. And then the invitados, the, 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 the guests begin to arrive, right? All of these guests start showing up. And they're tax collectors and sinners. And it's like, oh my gosh. Um, tax collectors and sinners. Who are these sinners? Right? Well, I don't know. You know, it could be, could be Greek businessmen. It could be prostitutes. It, who knows who these people are? But they are not the savory, you know, they're the unsavory people of town. They're the people on the other side of society from what we saw last chapter when Jesus calls the disciples to follow him and they go into the synagogue. It's a whole different crowd. Okay? These are the people that they were there, they knew who they were, but they would never associate with them socially and especially share a meal with them. And so you can, the, you know, the disciples are, they are not at ease here. Okay, you just imagine. The disciples are in this house going, I don't know what to touch. I don't know whether to eat anything. Is this a test? You know, what's going on here? How could Jesus do this? What is he, what is he doing? And so they're like on the edge of all of this. You can imagine they would be on the edge. I, I loved, um, you remember the old uh, movie Jesus of Nazareth? Remember the old movie Jesus of Nazareth? It was a series back in the 70s. I think it was, it was pretty heavily um, Catholic. Uh, but there was, there was this scene, and I loved it because it was kind of an open house. And you see the disciples on the edge. And then you see the Pharisees out there in the street, right? And they're like calling to the disciples. How can he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And they're like, we don't know. You know, it's like, we're, 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 they're trying to figure it out, right? Because it's not like they would have been fully engaged like Jesus. Jesus is sitting there, you know, popping grapes in his mouth, telling jokes, right? And, and, and they're like on, on edge. Um, it's just such a great scene. Yeah. What about Levi? What, why 
cheater, why would he immediately want to get out and follow? Well, obviously, the, the previous work of the Holy Spirit, right, is at work in him. He's probably felt guilty about his, his situation, about what he's been doing with his people, his relationship with God. He's probably been drawn to Jesus' teaching as he's heard things going on in the town. And then Jesus walks by and he looks at him and he says, follow me. And he goes, I'll give it all up to follow him. But for him then to be incorporated into this group of upstanding disciples is a whole nother story, right? Um, and so... He asked that same question about any of the disciples. You know, he comes up to Peter and James, and, he's, and they're working. Right? They're hard at it. He right. says, follow me, and they just drop everything. Same with James and John. Right. But, but, but yeah. Well, but... <laughs> But that's exactly right. Well, that's what he says right here. He says, Levi actually has the most reason to follow him. Exactly like you said, the guilt. Right. I mean, you know, he, he is a sinner. And he sees this man that's, yeah. you know, he, he knows there's something about this man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Levi's never been invited to be part of the religious establishment because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not going to touch him. Right. So he's never had this invitation to explore his Jewish heritage and to know God in a deeper way. So it, it obviously intrigues him, and he thinks, well, if Jesus can offer me this, then he can, it can be offered to all these other people that have been ignored by the religious people. Right. Yep. And, and I'm sure he hasn't had many friends either. To be honest, well, no. You know, being being a Jew, being a tax collector. Yeah. You know, you're kind of in a. You're you're limited to the tax collectors and yeah, sinners. That's yeah. that's about it. Yeah. Okay. So we see the same pattern, don't we? Jesus acts. In this case, it's not a miracle. He calls a, a, a yeah. tax collector to be his disciple and goes to his house for lunch or dinner. Um, we get questioning again. And then Jesus answers the question. And what does he reveal about his, his ID in this situation? Not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for the sinners. I didn't come for you guys. You guys have it all together. I've come for those who are, who are sick, those who need a doctor, right? That's who I've come for. So Jesus begins to reveal more about his identity and who he is, what his mission is, right? Okay. Oh, yes, he is. Yeah. That's right. Now, and that's, that's an important point because this is going to continue to build. And it's Jesus breaking all the don'ts. Jesus breaking all the rules that's building this tension in the religious leaders. So let's go to the next story. Well, we're seeing Jesus being able to heal body and soul or spirit. Yep. I mean, and... and those two things are very important because they're connected. We're both yep. physical and spiritual. Verse um, 18, someone read 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, 
Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. Both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. Okay, there it is. So, um, so what does Jesus do that provokes this question? and drinks. <laughs> He's not compelling his disciples to fast. Okay? So again, we're back to the don'ts, right? Don't eat. Fast. Um, Jesus isn't fasting. And, um, and so it, this one says, the people come and they ask, how is it that John's disciples, who are good guys, and the disciples of the Pharisees, who we thought were good guys, but now we're questioning that, okay? Um, both of those groups are fasting, but your group your disciples aren't fasting. And uh, so Jesus gives this set of three little illustrations, parables, okay? How are they all related? There's a new thing. Huh? There's a new thing. There's a new thing, there's a new thing in coming. What's interesting is these are all wedding-related issues. Think about it for a moment. Jesus says... First, he talks about the guest and the bridegroom, right? Sets the stage with that. Then he talks about an old garment being patched with a new patch. Well, when would you take out an old garment and patch it up? When you're going to a wedding, right? Pulling out mom's wedding dress. And you're going to patch it up and get it ready for the wedding. And then what is the most important element in a wedding? The wine. And so if you are amassing large quantities of wine, might you be tempted to fill uh, old wineskin with new wine? Because you're running out of, I mean, you're doing everything you can to amass large amounts of wine. You're going to run out of containers. Okay? And so all three of these are wedding-related um, pictures. Okay? Which is kind of cool. If we look at John, and we're... It hasn't been written yet, but just, just to give you a little tie-in here, the very first sign miracle in the book of John is the wedding, the wedding at Cana. And so Jesus, and this is one of the first parabolic sayings in the book of Mark, and it follows in Matthew and Luke, right? And so we, Jesus' ministry starts with this image of a, of a wedding, okay? It's very important, and we know in Revelation it's going to end with a wedding, Right? We're going to finish the wedding feast that started in, in chapter 2 of Mark. We're going to finish it in chapter 22 of Revelation. Right? Um, and because the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Right? In the middle of the wedding. And then he'll return at the second coming. And we'll finish the wedding ceremony that started back then. Okay? And so... The bridegroom, um, so he answers the question. So we've got Jesus' action, we've got the question, and then Jesus answered the question, and his revealing statements are pretty powerful. Um, First of all, I think he answers the question of fasting by saying that um, uh, he gives the the one scenario when it would be inconceivable to fast Mm -hmm. at a wedding feast. And he says, I'm not against fasting, but would you fast during a wedding feast? And a Pharisee would say, of course not. That would be offensive to the family. Well, the bridegroom's here. That's why my people don't fast. 
drop the mic and walk away. I mean, it's, it's such a powerful statement. There is a time for fast. This is not the time because the Messiah is here. This kind of makes me think about these Pharisees have been studying the Torah. Mm-hmm. They know the prophets. They, I mean, this is what they've mulled on and they're just in, totally immersed in this. But they're seeing something that just kind of blows their mind and saying, you know, we've studied this, we've added the extra laws to this, we know that this is all, you know, all our ducks in a row, and this blows the ducks out of the water, and they can't see what the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the other prophets have predicted throughout time that he will come, you know, that one is coming, and they're just... So they're really struggling because we can only see what we've studied and we know. Exactly. You're, you're exactly right. They're blind to the very prophecies that are there. And this idea of God and his people being in a marriage relationship is, um, is very much seen in the Old Testament. These are a couple of references. Um, there are more, uh, but these are a couple of my faves. Uh, that that we see um, if you look at this Ezekiel chapter 16 Ezekiel chapter 16 is an extended metaphor about God's relationship with his people and it begins with a story of God seeing his people like a baby that was aborted and left to die in the wilderness okay mm-hmm. a little baby girl that was which 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 was common in the ancient world we see it still in primitive societies where a, a, a especially a female child will be born um, and they would leave it to die because they wanted a male child, right? And they couldn't afford another child, and so you don't want a female, you want a male, and so you just leave the, the female to die. And so you've got this baby kicking about in its blood, uh, about to die, and God comes upon this child and says, live. And uh, then she grows and develops, and, he, and, and then she says, uh, extend, he's, he extends the corner of his robe over her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a beautiful picture of, t- of, of marriage, right? Um, we see it in the book of Ruth. Um, and so uh, Jesus, or God then marries this, this woman, and he adorns her and makes her beautiful, and, and then she becomes a prostitute, right? She worships other, as she worships other, th- other things. But this idea of God's covenant with his people is like a marriage. Okay, so this wedding imagery is not foreign. Um, and Jesus uses it. Hosea talks about this idea of God saying, I will betroth you in righteousness, and I will betroth you in justice, and I will, I will betroth you um, in, in, um, in, in all these things that are, that are positive, righteousness and justice and, and, and compassion. But a, but a bigger story behind this particular passage is that these are all people living under the old covenant. Right. That's that's all they know. They are looking for the Messiah, but they're not sure. He's saying, this is the new covenant. You, and you don't, the, the old covenant was perfect. It's just that the people can't obey. But here, you have in front of you, you have the new covenant. He is the beginning and the author of the new covenant, and you can't patch up the old one with the new one. Right. You, you can't take this old skin and, and, and put this new why this spirit this new because it'll just blow it up right and that's exactly what happens right on the day of pentecost so it's 
you know, I'm sure right. none of them had a clue, but later when they thought about it. So let's talk about wineskins. Yeah. I, I bought a wineskin on Amazon. Um, <laughs> notice the shape. What does it look like? Looks like a stomach. Because in the ancient world, they used goat stomachs or sheep stomachs for wineskins. That's what they would use. You don't have, you know, Ziploc bags. You don't have glass containers. You, you don't have any of that. What you have in the ancient world is what you produce, right? And they, produ they were a, a pastoral society. They had lots of sheep around, lots of goats. And so when they'd slaughter a goat, they'd take a stomach and they'd clean it out. The stomach has an opening at one end and an opening at the other end, right? In and out. And, and it's watertight. And so you clean it out real well. You take a cord. You tie up the opening at the back end. And then you fill it up with new wine, with, um, with grape juice. Then you tie off the top. Okay, and you seal it off. And what happens is, what happens with new wine? It begins a process of fermentation and gaseousness, and it begins to flex, right? Mm -hmm. but, the, but the stomach can handle it because it's new. Mm -hmm. And so it's pliable, it's stretchable, right? Mm -hmm. But then after a while, the wine re reaches its stasis, and it stops its fermentation process. Then you open it up and you pour out the wine, and then you're left with the skin, the empty old skin. Well, if you put new wine back into the old skin, it's now dried out. It's much older now, and it's stiff. And you put that new wine in there, and that process begins all over again. But the old skin can't handle it. It'll burst, right? And that's the problem. And so the same picture is true of the cloth, right? You've got hand-woven garment. It's old, it's been washed and washed and rewashed, and now it's all nice and tight, and it's stable. But you put a new patch on it of hand-woven material, and it's going to shrink, and it's gonna pull away from the, the old, and it's going to rip it and destroy both the old garment and the new. We have what's called pre-shrunk fabric today. Not in, yeah, but not then. But back then they didn't, and if you try to combine... Fabric that they had woven. What? Because, because that wouldn't make the, the illustration work, okay? So the issue here is Jesus, Jesus is describing exactly why, the, why it was a problem, right? You may do other things to resolve the problem, but Jesus is describing uh, in, a, in a way that they could understand that the kingdom is new. God is doing something new. The old was not bad. Jesus doesn't throw the old away. The old is the history and the foundation for the new, right? Because the old is the old covenant. We don't throw the old covenant away. It still is a revelation of who God is, right? It's still God's eternal word. We don't throw it away. But yet God is doing something new. And so we have to put the new wine, which is the dynamic movement of God, into this new wineskin into a new structure because the old structure can't handle it. And that's why Jesus keeps 
poking them in this area of the don'ts, right? Because it's forcing them to see that the old structure can't hold the new wine. All right? I think it's a good lesson for us, too, because we need to be flexible. Yeah. Like, like these things are, you know, and not get set in our ways and kind of be open. That's right. I mean, we need to be discerning, but right. we need to be open to and that's right. why he says you, you have to you have to love me like a child. Yes. A new <clears throat> a new vessel, a new thing that's not already hardened, you know, from life. You, you have to come to me innocent. Right. You know, just open. Right. As a kid, you know, you that's don't right. believe anything you tell. Well he's saying so, that the old wineskin served its purpose. What it was meant to do it did. And now you need a new wineskin to serve a new purpose. That's right. And so why do some churches die? Some churches die because they can't become a new wineskin. They stay old. They become stiff, right? And then they can't hold what God is doing. And God's doing something new. Something new rises up, a new structure. That's why we see denominations. We see churches. We th- see things become die. And that's, you know, why we try to push this church toward change and something new. Why? Because if we don't embrace change and try to assimilate what God is doing new, and that's not an easy process, it's difficult. Um, Then we become one of those obsolete vessels that cannot contain the new wine. I, I want to go on because I, I want you to see the whole picture of how these fit together. We've got about two minutes. <laughs> One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields with his disciples. Walking along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and needed and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which was lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so, again, we have the the act. The disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath as they walk along by the fields, and Jesus is not rebuking them. And as a result, the Pharisees say, look, don't you see what they're doing? What they're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. They ask the question. Jesus responds by going back to the Old Testament and finding precedent in the Old Testament for what they are doing. And then he reveals that man was made for that. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, that is a blasphemous statement if you're not God. All right, so Jesus makes this powerful statement. So we see the same pattern being followed. Finally, I want to bring us to the last story, which actually spans into chapter 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue... And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. 
Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, let's go back to our pattern. Does this story follow the same pattern? Huh? He talks first before he acts. He goes into the... And there is no question, right? And so Jesus questions them. He knows what's going on. He knows it's a trap. He asks the question. And they are silent. The questioning has ended. They've stopped asking questions. And when you stop asking questions, what happens? What happens when you stop asking questions? Your mind's made up. You can't receive any more revelation of who Jesus is. If you're not asking any more questions, you're not going to get any more answers. Jesus then asks the question to try to provoke them. To actually, it's a compassionate question. He says, what is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? Seems like a pretty easy question. It seems like an easy question, except for the fact that they were plotting to kill him on the Sabbath. They were plotting evil on the Sabbath, and Jesus was plotting to heal on the Sabbath. And he says, which one is lawful? To do good? To do what I'm about to do or to do what you're about to do. We're both going to work on the Sabbath. Which one is right? Which one is honoring to God? They should have fallen to, fallen to their knees in repentance. Right? But they didn't. All right? So, quickly, 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 quickly. I want to talk a little bit about structure as we end. We've got five stories. Okay, so first story is we heal, heal, heal a paralytic. What's the second story? Ah? Uh? Levi was called disciple. Disciples are eating with Levi. What's the next story? The fasting. What's the next story? One skin. Grain. 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 Grain on the Sabbath. Grain. What's the next story? The wine skin. Shriveled ham. Okay, this is a chiastic structure. These five stories. Look at, the, look at how they organize. Healing, healing. healing. Disciples eating. eating, disciples eating. Fasting, okay? Mm. So this is, this is a, called a chiasm. Um, but a, the only problem there, uh, the disciples eating on the Sabbath, it wasn't the eating, it was the, it was the, the work. That yeah, but it's about their eating. eating. Yeah. They were winnowing and they were they, harvesting. Eat, they had to winnow. So if you notice this kind of a structure, 
Looks like an arrow. Okay? Um, when This is very common in Hebrew literature. Okay, we see it all the time in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament quite a bit because they're Jewish writers. This is the way they organize thought. They don't organize thought Roman numeral 1, A, B, Roman numeral 2, right? A, B. Uh, this is Greek. This is Hebrew. All right? So we do this. The book of Romans looks more like this. All right? That's the way we think, linear. This is the way Jews think. Okay? And so what usually is in the middle is what's most important. And if you notice, the story here is reduced. Jesus' response, this is the wineskins. Right? This is the key idea. And that this whole complex fits together. That's why you have to see them together. Because these five stories are built to be together. And... This is the focal point of it. This is the, the, the center of the teaching. Because the new wine is, in essence, the new covenant. It's, this is it? the change. The change. This is the change. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah, very much Okay? So. Isn't, it, isn't it cool? You begin to see how the Bible is organized. You can see how this fits together. So when the monks drew up chapter 3 and chapter 2, the division between chapter 2 and 3, they missed it. Yeah. Okay? They followed, they said, these four stories follow a pattern, but this one doesn't fit, so it must be in the next chapter. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is part of this chapter. Okay, fits together. Because when you see a pattern established and then the pattern breaks, you've got to pay attention to the breaking of the pattern. Got to think Hebrew, not Greek. All right. So, so, get an idea about this. This is pretty powerful stuff. I think it's pretty amazing. This is the, this is the focus. God is doing something new. God is doing something new. He's doing something new always. He's always doing something new. Because God is a God, of, he is the creator God, right? So why would he ever stop creating? He's always doing something new with us. He's always stretching us beyond our comfort. And we gotta be pliable. And if we're not, then we're an old wineskin, right? When he comes back, will we know, or are we going to be just like the Pharisees? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> it's up to us. Which is easier? Forgive sins. You didn't answer that question. All right. No. Yeah. Well, he healed. So he said, he says, if I have the power to do with the impossible in the physical world, why wouldn't I have the power to do the impossible in the spiritual world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you, Lord God, that your word is true, and that it's so powerful to reveal to us the identity of Jesus, to understand him more completely. We thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.